Hi, everybody. I'm Gloria Moraga. This is the one-on-one podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and share my podcast. I appreciate it. My guest is Ben Court. He is the author of the book, Weed, Inc. He has a fascinating personal story to tell. And besides his story, he has keen insight into a crisis gripping the United States right now. According to the Centers for Disease Control, a record number of people died from reported drug overdoses over 12 months. The CDC reports that more than 96,000 drug overdose deaths were reported from March 2020 to March 2021. Drug overdose deaths have increased nearly 30% compared to 2019. These statistics were recently released. Before becoming an author and an advocate for legislative substance abuse reform, Ben Court was an addict. So he has been there and done that. During our one-on-one, he mentions Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and the 12-step program. I will include links to his book, Weed, Inc., and information on AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and that 12-step program. All of this information will be on my website, GloriaMoraga.com. How did you first get involved in doing drugs, and then how did you turn your life around? Well, the... um Initial involvement, we, we, we left, um, my family moved from Colorado to the greater D.C. area when I was uh, 12, I think. And really, I think my initial involvement came because there were just so many people using so many different things and I really, really didn't fit in. You know, I didn't understand how cities worked and urban environments. And, um, and, and I think what I came to realize a little bit later was, at least at the beginning of things, um, I was probably treating some mental health disorders that I have uh, with those substances because I, I didn't uh, come from any kind of money or anything. So uh, we weren't, I wasn't going and seeing psychiatrists. So I guess I just kind of found stuff on the street that made life hurt a little bit less. And um, what ends up happening usually in those scenarios is we, we like to say in our typical 12-step triteness that um, it works until it doesn't. And so it worked for a little while and then became something that was uh, much, much more of, it was handcuffs, not a parachute anymore. And it was, you know, it was Washington, D.C. in the mid-90s. Everybody was using, not everybody, people I was with were using quite a bit of everything. And... Um, it, it was it was a mess. Uh, I suppose I could have stayed out of the whole thing. I knew plenty of people who did, but <laughs> so where, so where did you actually live in Washington D.C.? I lived there for ten years. I worked on Capitol Hill, so I was a, a reporter there, and I lived on. Fifth, oh, cool! I lived on Fifth Street for most of the time I was there. Uh, Fifth Street, oh, south we- southeast. So I was, you know, I could walk to the Supreme Court when I covered the court. Where, where were you? I, I was in Virginia. I wasn't, oh, okay. I didn't live in the city. I just okay. spent a lot of time in the city. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? 
did you did you hit bottom or I mean, what happened? And I mean, tell us that story. Well, it's a really long life. Um, <laughs> all, <laughs> I will. Um, I, I had spent quite a bit of time, maybe the last year, last year, maybe year and a half of my use. I mean, I was 18 when I got sober. Um, just totally hopeless. Uh, like, I, I mean, maybe even hopeless is the wrong word. It's just a, such a in the moment existence that I never, um, there just was no tomorrow and there certainly wasn't a next month and there sure as hell wasn't a next year. So it's not like I was planning for anything or working towards anything. What you're doing is just kind of trying to get through the day with the least amount of pain, feeling and emotion that you can. And, um, that's, a, that's, it's an easy way to live when you never stop and consider it. I mean, when you think about, um, the only thing that you're doing every day is kind of like um, just trying to get by and and just trying to figure out some way to hurt less. Um, you just kind of get caught up in that rut. And it wasn't until um, I, I actually, a very dear friend of mine um, to this day, uh, he had gotten sober. A couple of my friends did and they'd all tried to talk me into it. The court system had tried to talk me into it. <laughs> all, all kinds of people had. Um, he convinced me again, a kind of long story, but he convinced me to go with him on a trip, um, and to not use or drink for five days. And, uh, in the course of those five days, I, I think there was enough clarity that happened. There was enough, um, opportunity to sort of pause and to take a, a little bit of a look at where my life was that I got pretty scared. Like I, I didn't. I didn't quit using because I like wanted a better life or because I wanted to finally do what everybody told me was the right thing to do. I, I quit using because I took that time off and I was able to step back and um, get scared enough that, and really any one of those days could have been my last one. And I certainly was headed towards um, absolutely nowhere. So, uh, I really spent the first two years of my life or my first few years of my recovering life, not so much in recovery as just staying abstinent. I mean, I was going to, I mean, certainly one AA or NA meeting every day, a lot of the times two, um, nine or 10 meetings a week, uh, and just to stay clean. Uh, it's not, I I wasn't, I, I hadn't found the other side of this thing yet. Uh, we like to say in the 12-step world that um, if we give it enough time and we do the work, we end up being happy, joyous, and free. And I didn't find that for about two years. I just, uh, I got scared and fear kept me from using until I actually started to do some of that work. You know, I'll just add here, not many people find happy, joyous, and free um, <laughs> in general. So, um, yeah, if your program's working, it's working. So, um, I, you know, I, I grew up in Fresno, California, uh, before I went to college and, and never wanted to go back, but uh, I worked there in, in, on television for a while before I went to Washington. And, um, I have a, I, I come from many relatives who, who have addictions. So it, it it's something, 
when you're able to uh, put it down and uh, and move on. So congratulations on that. But um, I'm sure it could have been a lot easier. You know, fear is a great motivator. <laughs> so if your <laughs> friend gave you that, you know, that's a good friend. <laughs> that fear. Of, Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I always think that, uh, you know, part of the reasons I didn't drink and become an alcoholic or, you know, do drugs was because of fear, you know, because I never I never wanted to have to you know, lose my freedom, you know, in any way. So yeah. what um, what can you say about our current situation in the United States with our addictions? Because it seems to be getting worse. There's the pharma, you know, the whole situation with pain killers. But also there's um, the legalization of marijuana, which I've always I've heard you speak on that. I don't know. What are we doing here to to ourselves as far as, um, you know, recovering and trying to be clean and sober? Oh, we're in a big damn mess. (laughs) We are. um, So what what we have done uh, in the last few years, I think, as a society and, and certainly from a lot of the policy is decided that um, policy and things that we had in the past weren't perfect. And so we should just swing the pendulum completely in the other direction. And I don't want to downplay the, the, the amount of not perfect that are, the drug laws in this country have been. Um, we have never, ever gotten close to nailing this. But what we, what's been presented to the American people seems to be this ridiculously false dichotomy of either throw everybody in prison or provide access to everything to everyone. And it, neither one at, at all makes sense unless you run some sort of industrial prison or manufacture and sell some sort of drugs. For the rest of us who are kind of caught in the middle, we're in this place that just seems to me, it, it's nonsensical. An argument that is um, pretty simple and, and straightforward and makes perfect logical sense just gets refuted with, with a with a tagline we are in a place inside of our country and our country has always struggled with misuse addiction uh, intoxication uh, as much as any other country in the world and more than most it's a mentality thing i think but we're in a place right now where we are experiencing overdose rates that we have never, ever seen before, and not just from one certain substance. You know, for a very long time, this, we decided to, to call it an opiate crisis and to focus just on um, opiates, which was good. They had gotten out of control. But what we weren't looking at or considering were the real underlying base causes for why a lot of people used, as well as the actual efficacy behind some of the treatment that we introduced to them. So when we segmented these, these different substances, one from another, it was really easy for us to just kind of look at just opiates. When in reality, uh, last year, we had a higher amphetamine overdose rate than we have ever had recorded before in this country. Um, our deaths due to alcoholism continued to be every single year, the, the year prior. Um, our, the cannabis use disorder, the amphetamine use disorder, the opiate use disorder, everything it's just at levels that we've never seen before. And we're actually even starting to see overall percentages. We've always said 
10% of this country is genetically predisposed to addiction. So we'll always have about a 10% addiction rate. That's starting to look like it's more like 15 or 16% because we're using stronger stuff earlier. You know, we are, we are missing the mark uh, in some really significant ways on the way and uh, how we're looking at drug policy in this country. It's frightening. Yeah. I don't think that many people really even know. Well, unless you're related to somebody who who's a substance abuser. And so that and that those numbers are growing. It wasn't COVID. Is it a multitude of things? Is it bad drug policy? Because I don't ever recall us having a good drug policy in the United States. Like you said, it was it's let's put them all in jail. Let's criminalize it. Even marijuana was criminalized. Let's throw them all in jail or let's just give you some more painkillers. What's the problem? Can we blame a lot of it on COVID or not? <laughs> um, we, we can certainly blame some of it on COVID, but you're, you're asking a pretty philosophical question. And I think that it would be, it, it'd be hard to answer that. I, I mean, I, I guess I know some folks who could answer it with real data. I, I think <laughs> Dr. Compton, Dr. Volkoff, um, some of these folks out of Washington could answer it. But why do we use and why are we using more? If we want to be, if we want to oversimplify the problem, we inevitably will oversimplify the solution. But we, we love oversimplified solutions. We love a, a quick fix. We love a pill for a thing instead of work for it. It, it. It's easy to say, well, those damn Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, they pushed Oxycontin yeah. on everybody. So they got, and yes, culpability absolute money, but the reason why. Um, it, it would be really easy for us to say those cartels and they're, they're switching from cannabis to amphetamine and um, bringing so much meth in that's so pure. We, we could say the, those Chinese corporations who are sending raw pseudoephedrine directly to Mexican cartels so that they can send us stronger meth. But none of those answer the questions. Like every single thing that we look at on those always is on the supply side. And that's what we've kind of screwed up, I, I think, to some degree, is we continue to kind of go after the people who are bringing it to us instead of maybe ask a really, really hard question. And that is, why do we, in one of the wealthiest countries, most successful places in this, this world, why do we need to get as intoxicated as we get? Why do Americans have the highest substance abuse and mental health disorder rates of anywhere in the recorded world. Why? And, and I think if, we, if, if we're willing to ask that question more, why do we use instead of who's giving us what we use? Um, it, it, there's just no simple, quick answer to it. It's not like we can pass a, a change to a law and, and fix it. Because why do we use is, has a, a many, many answers. That's where it gets philosophical. Right, um, right. Some people use because they don't have appropriate access to mental health care. I mean, their schools are terrible. They never get to go to college. They, they grow up in poverty with no hope of better. Some people use because their family members use and hurt them or abuse them or, or people do terrible things to them when they're young. Some people use because they're genetically predisposed to it. Some people use because they get in uh, they twist a knee playing volleyball. And the doc overprescribes. Like mm -hmm. the, the reasons why we use are vast. The simple question I, that I feel like it comes down to is why are we using so much? And why, are, why have we gotten to this place, I guess, where 
we're just sort of accepting it as the norm. Um, you know, in, in my book, I sort of put forth this question, which was, um, look, at, at what point did substance use or, or at what point did intoxication go from celebratory sort of a rite of passage, let's have drinks at the wedding or, you know, 21, everybody's going to probably drink too, too many that night to um, I should be intoxicated every single day of the week. When, when did that shift here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over a long period of time, it shifted. You know, it didn't happen overnight. Tell me about your book. Oh, yeah, sure. It's, it's out there everywhere. It's called Weed Inc. Weed um, Inc. Okay. So one of, the, one of the basic premises, and again, I, I don't want to oversimplify something so complex, but one of the basic premises that I come to this discussion with is um, the corporate interests behind the sales of these things are absolutely culpable and are a giant part of the problem. So the most devastating, hands down, far and away, the most devastating substance in this country, I mean, like twice over to the next one is alcohol. And it's not because alcohol is worse than these other drugs. It's simply because it's more widely available it's cheaper and it has a lower perception of harm. And the reality always has been that the problem users are the ones who buy the most of that product. So you have to not only target problem users, you have to continue to cultivate more problem users. So for the basic premise of that book is that the same thing that happened to alcohol, that happened to pharma, tobacco, has also happened to cannabis. The gigantic corporate powers that be behind them are much, much, much more concerned with profit over anything. What do we do? I know Mm. there's another question for you. (laughs) We're in this situation and it's really honestly been, I mean, I'm trying to do a series of stories on uh, in videos and podcasts on problems that we're, we're not addressing or that are kind of out of control. So it's drug abuse, it's homelessness and, and mental health. And it's all connected. It's interconnected. We have mental health problems. We abuse substances, you know, and we, we find ourselves homeless. People are in an uproar because you can't go downtown because, you know, there's so many homeless people on the street and, you know, they're intoxicated and, you know, they're on drugs. And, you know, so it's starting to be that these problems that used to be, you know, my, my dad was an alcoholic and he was a, he was a happy alcoholic. So everyone would say, you're so lucky. You have the nicest dad. He's the greatest dad when he was at a party or out, but at the house, it was a totally different story. So it used to be that we had that, we kept that inside. Well, now it's not inside anymore. Now it's, it's out there. What are we just not recognizing these problems? And they're just, there is no public policy. Part of the problem is that some of the things that we should be doing are difficult. Um, and so let me answer that in, in two ways. And what my opinion on it is, and it's a somewhat informed opinion because I get to spend a lot of time with our nation's lawmakers, both at the federal and at the state levels, even internationally. First, uh, I really don't think that the vast majority of politicians, like you said, they, they really don't care even a little bit because the people in question are not voting. Um, and if, if they're not voting, I mean, the simple truth of it is that, that the political experience that I have, which gets to be unfortunately more and more every day, 
has shown me that about one out of every 10 people who I bump into actually means anything about what they say. The rest of them are just pandering to whatever the moment's polls direct them to pander to. And I don't care what side of the aisle we're, we're talking about. I, I don't trust any of that nonsense. And I think unless they feel like it's going to advance their careers, they don't care. So from a public policy standpoint, if we wanted to do things, one, we could start to absolutely demand that our lawmakers care about and pay some attention to this. You said um, what, what you said at the beginning was very insightful. And one of the reasons that I've decided to, um, I, I guess, sort of make this uh, my life is that I think that this is sort of foundational. I think that th this is kind of at the bottom of the pyramid of the hierarchy of needs. And that is mental health and wellness, which it is you, you can't possibly, I don't think a thinking person could separate homelessness from mental health, from drug addiction. I mean, they are also intertwined and woven together. And, and then if we really wanted to get real about it, we'd have to consider poverty and the, the way that people's childhoods play out, their, their ACE scores, et cetera. The, the thing that we could do from a public policy standpoint is stop trying to address these things in silos, in isolation. Let's stop looking at this as um, an opiate crisis and let's look at this as um, an addiction crisis. And if we look at it as an addiction crisis, we have to look at it as a mental health crisis. Okay. And if we look at it as a mental health crisis, then homelessness, mass shootings, these terrible events that take place around, they're included too. But the only practical solutions to this are very, very difficult. They are expanded access to screening and mental health care, real mental health care. They are putting a, a real effort out there to actually train a workforce that could handle the influx of people who would come in. And it's the government deciding that maybe they want to spend a little more money in keeping us well than they do in throwing people in prison or in fighting wars all over the place. On an individual level, so what you could do there, hold your politicians' feet to the fire on this, what we can do on an individual level, I think, is, is a couple-fold. Get involved in this. You, you, you have to educate yourself first, or else you're going to end up getting taken advantage of. Right. But get involved in this conversation and um, have enough information to be able to push back when people say dumb things. And from the, um, <laughs> you, you know, as somebody who pretty firmly believes now because I, um, I have moved to that happy, joyous, free place. Most days, not every day. Today's a good one. Um, one of the things that we spend a lot of time in sort of the 12 step world and, uh, and, and things talking about is this, this thing that's on the back of our coins that we get every year that says to thy known self be true. And it's not a selfishness. It's not a, exclude the masses from me. It is, um, if I care for me, then I can do a better job of caring for you. So the challenge I think that I would throw out there to your listeners, if you say, well, what, what can I possibly do about substance abuse in this country? Use less, stop using, drink less, stop drinking. Because every dollar that we take away from those corporations is, is one less that they can use to addict the other. If we say, what can I possibly do about mental health? Check your own mental health. And, um, you know, as I went from somebody who 12 step to, geez, maybe I need professional therapeutic work to then I need more than professional therapeutic work. I, I actually need pharma 
and in my, I, I need antidepressants too. So now somebody who's got, I got 12 step, I've got my therapist and I have my <laughs> antidepressants um, that keep me, and I'm great talking about it. Um, and, and that's one of those things that we can do on a more personal level. Like you, you really can't go out there and, and try and heal everything in, unless we've taken a hard look at ourselves first. So maybe if a bunch of us just got healthier individually, uh, that would contribute to something. <laughs> and you make such a good point. My podcast is one-on-one and I really think that communicating and talking about things, you know, we don't like to talk to each other. We, we don't like to say, why are you drinking so much? You know, we don't like to say, why do you have to go have go to a, a wine tasting vineyard every time you come to town? Talking about it really does help. I know people who poo-poo antidepressants and it's, it's a chemical imbalance. There's nothing wrong with treating you know, something that's wrong with you. You just can't go crazy. It's also probably not a practical idea to look for a solution for everything that we've got in a pill. While the antidepressant that I take is a big part of it, so is my daily meditation. Mm -hmm. So is my fitness routine, my spirituality, my, my quiet time that I spend with self. It's not, we're not just going to take a pill and have everything get better. And, and it's funny, it's um, all of these things. It's like sitting down and eating a bag of potato chips and, and, a, and a, a, a bin of ice cream while you're doing it. It's awesome. But then afterwards, you're like, you know, why did I do that? When we start to get ourselves into a habit where we just have a little bit more health, I suppose, where we're sleeping differently and communicating differently and eating differently and taking care of whatever mental health uh, conditions you, you may have, then, then I think maybe we can get to a place where we can be a little bit more a, a, a able to help masses. You are just a wonderful Thank you so much. You know, honestly, thank you so much. You know, I, I could talk to you all day and I, I would like you Let's to do it again to be my therapist. You know what I'd like? <laughs> no, you, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> I could just talk to you about all my issues because, uh, gosh, honestly, I mean, I've said this to people. I could be a roaring drunk. I could have been the world's best drug addict. I threw myself into work so that because I'm so afraid it's the fear thing of becoming, you know, my dad. And, you know, I'm more like my dad than anyone else on earth. You're great. I'm only wrapping up because the last time I was doing one of these Zoom just cut us off. And you know, I didn't have a chance to say goodbye. I would love to just uh, touch bases with you kind of on a semi regular basis about the fight to force our legislators that we pay for to recognize these problems that we're having here at, in our neighborhoods. And, and what are you going to do about it? Damn it. That's good with me. Okay. All right. Gosh, you're great. Thank you very much for your, you're very welcome. Thanks for uh, calling. Yeah. You're, you're, um, you're wonderful. Keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. And um, I know the program. You're very welcome. All right. And God bless. I look forward to talking more later. Me too. Take it. All right. We'll do this. Okay. See you. All right. Bye-bye. I enjoyed talking with author Ben Court so much. 
I ordered three of his books and I'm going to buy two additional digital copies. I'm going to be giving those books away to podcast and or YouTube listeners. Stay tuned. I'll have some more information on this on my website, GloriaMoraga.com. Just hang in there. It's going to be coming as soon as I get the books and kind of put everything in place. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please share my podcast and download and tell a friend. Take care. Stay safe.